This evening I'm going to be continuing this series that I've been doing on the hallmarks of this church by looking at being a generous church. In previous weeks we talked about being outward looking and servant hearted and compassionate and in some ways these hallmarks are really all part of what it means to be generous. But this evening I particularly want to talk about being generous with our money. Someone told me Well, I'm not sure whether it's amusing. It was certainly very concerning, this story of when he invited a friend to come along to a service here. And uh, when invited, his friend said, how much is it? And he said, well, it's free. And the person said, oh, I thought you had to pay to come to church. The perception of people who rarely if ever go to church may be that the church is after their money. And indeed, the God we worship is after their money. One of our pastors who was just up here, John Bodley, was in a pub recently and he overheard a woman explaining to her father that she'd recently been invited to go to a local church and she said, they said they'd like to bless me. And he said, bless you my beep, they're after your money, that's all. And hearing this, John felt compelled to change this negative perception of the church. So he dashed across the road to a cash machine and he returned to their table and said, sorry to be nosy, but I couldn't help overhearing your conversation earlier about the church. I just wanted you to know that I'm part of a church and we definitely aren't after your money and neither is God. I believe he does want to bless you. And so if it's okay, I'd love to pay for your lunch. And they responded by gratefully pulling up a chair so that they could find out more. What motivated John to do what he did? We believe that God is extravagantly generous, the most generous person in the universe, and he calls us, his church, to reflect that in how we live and how we give. That's such a challenging thing to do because we live in a culture which is constantly pulling us in the other direction. The pressure to spend on ourselves is all around us. This year, the advertising industry is set to spend almost 20 billion pounds telling us that if you buy this product or that product, your heart's desires will be fulfilled. Money says, do you want to have a good life? Focus your life on me. Do you want to feel loved? and significant just by Lynx deodorant or Maybelline Colossal Lash Mascara and your chance of attracting a mate will massively improve. You want fulfillment? There's nothing money can't buy. The new iPhone 10, that adventure holiday or a Mercedes A-Class will make all your dreams come true. You want uh, freedom and security Earn and hoard enough and you'll have what the world calls financial freedom or financial security. Do you want to find your identity? Go on eBay. The place to find what makes you you is their tagline. The message hidden in that phrase is that you are what you own. Spend your money on things which define you. Now, obviously, we can all legitimately express our creativity and our individuality through things that we buy. Most of my shoes, including the ones I'm wearing today, I got secondhand from eBay. I love it. But uh, it's not the place, let me assure you, to find what makes you, you. You're a child of God. Your identity is his beloved. You want to find happiness? Go on right move and buy a better house. 
All these messages are about stuff. Spend your money on this and it will fulfill your heart's desires. But it is just not true. If money bought you happiness, the happiest people in the world would be those with the most money, right? Howard Hughes, who the film The Aviator was based on, was fabulously wealthy. He was estimated to have a personal fortune of over $2 billion. But his money couldn't make him happy, couldn't make him healthy. He spent his final decades as a recluse and died a miserable, lonely billionaire. The root of the word miserable is miser, a person who keeps their wealth for themselves. It's illustrated, as we approach Christmas, I imagine that some of you will be settling down at some point to watch a version of A Christmas Carol, to watch Ebenezer Scrooge, a miserable miser, come to the realization that money wasn't bringing him any real happiness. We see him there being transformed and finding joy as he began to give it away to others. We've all heard the old adage that money can't buy you happiness, but for some reason, it's something that we struggle to accept. And this is not an issue that's unique to today's society. Second only to the great theme of the kingdom of God, Jesus is recorded the subject, his second most uh, stuff that he said about as teaching on was money. Around a third of the words, Jesus is recorded as saying something about money. Why? Why did the greatest teacher who has ever lived make money one of the two main topics of his teaching? I think the answer is actually quite simple. Jesus believed that money is the number one rival to God for the human heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous piece of teaching that Jesus ever gave, he said this, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The Apostle Paul understood this and he wrote to Timothy, the leader of one of the early churches in 1 Timothy 6, tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today, and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go after God who piles all, on all the riches we could ever manage to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. Paul was writing to Timothy who led the church in Ephesus modern day Turkey and probably every one of us even if we don't feel very wealthy is more wealthy than anyone in that church. And he's saying, command those who are rich in this world. So we're all basically rich in terms of what he's talking about here. Don't be so obsessed with money and all the stuff that money can buy. Don't try and find your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your identity, your security, your happiness in what it can buy because it's not going to work, Paul's saying. Go after God who will take care of all your needs and he'll do so abundantly. Don't spend it all on yourselves, give it away. Invest it in God and his purposes. And he says, if you do this, you are building eternal treasures, treasures for this life and the life to come, which truly is the life that he desires for us. And Paul here was reinforcing what Jesus was saying there in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go back to Matthew 6, verse 19. 
Jesus said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what does it mean in practice to store up treasures in heaven? Many Christians subconsciously read what Jesus says here as a call to selflessness. Rather than storing up treasure, amassing goodies for yourself, store up treasure for others or store up treasure for God. Don't be selfish, be selfless. But is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't believe he is. Many years ago, a foreign element entered Christianity via the humanistic philosopher Immanuel Kant, who doesn't look to me like a very happy fellow. Here's a picture of him. And his thesis went this way, that if a person benefits from their activity, then there's something wrong with that activity. He said the highest motive possible for a human being is to be selfless. And many Christians have latched onto that, and so millions of Christians around the world are doing their very best to be selfless. However... As grand as that may sound, it is not the teaching of the Bible. Again and again and again, I could do a whole study on it. And it's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. In Luke 12, 33, Jesus is recorded as adding, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Provide purses for yourselves. Store up for yourselves. Rich Nathan, a friend of mine from Columbus, Ohio, says this. These two words, for yourselves, are key to understanding the motive for obedience to Jesus in the area of money. Jesus seems to be appealing to a motive of what is best for me? What is actually best for me in the long term? Randy Alcorn wrote an extraordinary little book called The Treasure Principle. It's a challenging read. It's written by someone who really, really has understood God's invitation to invest our money in what really counts. And I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, you can get it online. I checked tonight for about six pounds. It is probably going to be one of the most profound reads of your entire life. There should be a health warning on the front because you might end up being more generous than you currently are if you were to read it. But I really would encourage you. Amen. In it, he says, thank you. Someone's read it. Good for you, Matt. <laughs> He writes this, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. If you stopped reading too soon, you would have thought Christ was against our storing up treasure for ourselves. No, he's all for it. In fact, he commands it. Jesus has a treasure mentality. He wants us to store up treasures. He's just telling us to stop storing them in the wrong place and start storing them in the right place. Store up for yourselves. Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus commands us to do what's in our own best interests? Wouldn't that be selfish? No. God expects and commands us to act out of enlightened self-interest. He wants us to live to his glory, and what is to his glory is always to our good. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, how is giving my stuff away, giving my money away to my good? I'm going to have less money for me. It's going to, you know, my bank balance will reduce. How, when do I feel the benefits of this investment? When do I get to enjoy this treasure? And what is this treasure like? Well, firstly, Jesus tells us that this treasure can be immediate. Because it's often in the very moment of giving that God blesses us with a sense of joy as we give. 
Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, the second letter, chapter 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the original language it was written in was Greek. The Greek word translated as cheerful is heleros, from which we get the word hilarious. There is a joy, a hilarity, if you like, in giving, which people who hold on to their money never get to experience. You may recall a time when you've given a gift to someone and you felt more blessed in giving it than they possibly could have in receiving it. A couple of weeks ago, Trent Kids held a shine party, which was a great opportunity for children to come together to play games and invite their friends as an alternative to Halloween that we do each year. And there was a small charge for a ticket to the party to cover some of the cost of putting the event on. On the day before the party, Becca, who leads Trent Kids, received a phone call from a member of the church who had heard about the event, really wanted to do something to bless the kids' work, and he paid for every child to go along to that party. And because the ticket, well, you can applaud that, yeah. Because the tickets were bought via church suite, uh, those who bought tickets were simply electronically refunded. Amazing. And about 100 of the children there were friends who don't come to church. And some of those friends came along the following Sunday because they'd had such a great time and they brought their parents who stayed for the whole service. Now, I don't know who it was, but I would imagine the person who gave that money felt a sense of joy, a happiness, which buying some possession could never have given him. So this treasure is in part immediate, but it's also often abundant. So let's read on in that passage, 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As Jesus said in Luke 6, give, it didn't stop there, it could have stopped there full stop. I mean, given what God has given to us, it could just be give. Okay, God commands me to give. But he says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. The Lord loves to reward us when we give. And sometimes that reward is financial. Many of us here could tell stories of amazing financial blessings which are just simply way beyond coincidence following our faithful giving. But it is certainly not always financial. God is not a slot machine. Put in a pound, get out a fiver, that's aberrant teaching it's not the teaching of the bible but God loves to bless cheerful givers and he does it in so many ways so many ways one of the ways I've been abundantly blessed is seeing lives changed which had I and others not given would not have happened I want to share with you one of the many stories of a transformed life here in the church it's the story of someone who's become a friend And walking with him on his journey of faith has been one of the great joys of my life. Nick has given me permission to tell you his story. Another friend of mine, Czech, brought Nick to Trent about two and a half years ago and introduced me to him over there that day. And Nick introduced himself as being a bit of a lost soul and was here just looking for some direction. He grew up in a very, very violent family situation and became well-trained in the art of fighting. And he described the company he kept as gangsters 
and rock-hard people. And yet he told me I was the most aggressive guy I've ever met in my life. I lived a life of fighting, trying to prove myself and maintain a reputation. And he was arrested for some extremely violent crimes. And though he felt horrible about who he had become, he didn't feel able to change. Nick came to church a few times, then he joined the Alpha Course, and what struck him so powerfully was the welcome he received, the being embraced by what he described as the beautiful people here. And it was really difficult as he left this place with all these nice people to go back into a world where everyone wasn't so nice to have to put his defenses up really fast because it was chalk and cheese, darkness and light. During the course, his table host, Steve, asked if anyone had any problems that they would like prayer for, and Nick told them he had not slept a night through in about 30 years, waking 10 or 15 times a night, watching the clock right through the night, and also that he had drunk about eight cans of beer a night for the whole of that time. The table prayed, Nick went home, and to his utter shock, he woke up about nine in the morning, having slept right through. The following night, he was awoken at about 3 a.m. with the room flooded with light. He thought it might be like a police helicopter shining a spotlight into his room. And he had the most extraordinary experience of God's presence. He had an open vision of where his life was heading if he didn't change. And it was not looking good. And he heard a voice say, I've got a better way for you. Only you can change, but I will guide you. And he was so physically exhausted by the experience that went on for some time that he couldn't even walk and took some hours to recover. That day, as his wife offered to go and buy him his beers, he realized he didn't want to drink anymore. And his addiction to alcohol was completely and instantly broken. And Nick has slept well ever since. His relationship with Jesus began then, and he really is a changed man. Now, none of us is perfect, of course, and Nick would be the first to admit that he isn't, but he is a different person. Now, instead of being violent with people who owe him money or do bad things to him, he prays for them. He experienced God's forgiveness and immediately began to forgive others, which he hadn't ever been able to do before. He says, the venom has gone. He's known evil in a way that very few of us have, and he's now stepped into an amazing freedom. Instead of hating the person he had become, he now loves the person he is becoming. And those around him love the dramatic change that they have seen. Others who are involved in the world that he has come from have also seen a change in him, and he's told them that it's God who's changed his life. And as he's prayed for them, God has orchestrated amazing things in their lives. He's learned to love in a new way. And as I've watched him change, I've seen the fruits of the Spirit growing all the time as he's making God-honoring choices day by day, as he's sowing to the Spirit, the Bible calls it. And it's been an absolute joy for me to witness him growing in love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Nick has experienced a little glimpse of the immediate blessing of giving himself, illustrating going back to my first point. 
He was in a cafe one day and he overheard an elderly couple being told their meal was more expensive than they had expected. And he saw them counting out their money in anticipation of the bill. And somewhat to his surprise, he found himself spontaneously going up to the counter and paying for their meal. And as he walked out, he said it was like walking on air. He felt amazing and he had a skip in his step all day. Just wonderful. Do you know, that's basically why I do what I do. Buildings and numbers and numbers are made up of individuals. And it's the individuals who find themselves in little books like Changing Lives. The individuals, many of you are here and you have your own fantastic stories of how God has changed you. Over the years, I've just been amazed at the generosity of this church. But I've been even more amazed at how God has returned our investment with interest, how he has blessed us abundantly. Through the extraordinary generosity of many of you here, there's an amazing kids center taking shape uh, just outside next door. Now we don't have all the money yet, which we were aiming at. If you would like to join the rest of us in giving to that, you can pick up one of these, the Making Room for More brochure, you'll find it in the Connect area. Those of us who have so far given to make that possible have invested with the expectation that God will respond to that investment, respond generously, abundantly, and we will see thousands of children's lives shaped in that building as well as in this building over the coming decades. You know, many of those children who will one day be adults will have children. And their children will have children. And on and on, thousands and thousands will be impacted through what we have given to there. Lives have been changed like Nick and those recorded in this book and many others through God encountering people at events and groups and through ministries made possible because many of you have given. There's one on a seat near you. Please do take it home. If this is your church, I really would love you to read it, cover to cover. It doesn't take that long. One cup of tea, you can read the whole thing. And it is really so, so encouraging. And having read it, pray about someone you might give it to. From here, we have released 10 church plants, changing lives in other cities. This evening, well, it was actually this morning, because most of them meet in the morning, there were, were probably well over 1,500 people in those churches meeting uh, experiencing some of what we experience here, but thousands of others whose lives will be blessed through the things that they do and the relationships they have. Because of your amazing generosity and the decision we made right at the beginning, as a church, we have been able, over these 21 years, to give away or spend on activities which don't benefit ourselves a staggering five million pounds changing lives all over the city, all over this nation, and across most of the continents of the world. I don't know about you, but I find huge satisfaction in knowing that I contributed to making those things possible. That is hugely rewarding. But it's not only now that we experience the treasure. It can be immediate, it is often abundant, but finally, and most importantly, it is eternal. The Bible promises that every time we give, it's an investment into the future and our reward will be there when we get to heaven. Let me just read from Randy Alcorn's book. Whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. 
Now, we don't understand exactly how we'll be rewarded, but the Bible is clear that the experience of heaven will be affected by how we live these years we have on earth. And we can imagine what heaven's like. We can imagine, am I going to get a bigger mansion than someone else because I gave more than they did or live more faithfully or whatever. We don't, I mean, all those pictures are just so inadequate to understand the enormity of what that blessing will be like, that reward will be like. But Jesus said, and as I mentioned before, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now, it'll be multifaceted, that blessing, that some will receive more than others. But part of our reward, which we have stored up for ourselves, is that we will spend eternity with many, many people who would probably not have been there if you and I hadn't invested our money in this church and the work of God's kingdom. Just let that truth settle for a moment. Because of your serving, your loving, your giving, we will get to enjoy heaven surrounded by thousands of people who came to faith through this church and the churches that we plant from here. And indeed, we're very shortly about to plant a grandchild church, if you like. One of the church, churches we planted is going to plant. And that will go on and on over the decades. Sometimes we may not see the return on our investment in this life, but there is a promise that we will experience it in eternity. I'm going to use an illustration that I borrowed from Francis Chan to show you what I mean. This rope I have here, imagine that it just goes on and on and on. And this little bit here, this bit of tape, yellow and black tape, is to stop the rope from fraying. And it's really rather short, isn't it, compared to the rest, the rest of our existence. But so often... We focus on this part. We think to ourselves, you know, I've got to study well so I can get myself a good job, get myself a good income, get promoted here somewhere. I've got to be always looking forward. Oh, I've got all those holidays I've got to make sure I can afford and enjoy those experiences. And then I've got to make sure, of course, I'm saving up for retirement because I want to be able to, you know, travel a bit and play golf. And, and at some point, this comes to an end. Essentially, though, this is the wisdom of the world. This is humanist thinking. We are born and then we die. And at some point, it could be prematurely we die, or it could be we're 105 years old when we die, but it's pretty short, isn't it, in light of eternity. What about this? What about the bit that goes on forever? Because the Bible tells us that what we do in this tiny part determines our experience of eternity. Some people might look at our decisions and uh, consider them foolish. You know, Debbie and I, on the first bill when we did this, we, we gave away our inheritance that we just simply, we'd recently received. We remortgaged our house to release some equity, and we gave what was in our bank. And then we gave a pledge over a number of years, and we've done that now over, what, 17 years, and it's still going on. But people might look at a decision like that and say, hold a minute, that's a lot of money. Think of the things you could have done, those holidays you could have had, those possessions you could have purchased. But, you know, you're mad. But, uh, you, you know, you won't have enough for your desires here if you give generously to God's uh, work. But it, it's actually not very foolish when you look at it this way, is it? Because while we're here, we're investing in that bit. Let me just walk over here with it so you can see this really clearly. So stretching out for eternity... What we do here rolls out in eternity. 
I just want you to remember that image. Whenever you think about how you live and how you give in this life, that's this life. It rolls out for eternity. When we get to the end of our lives, we don't want to look back at all that we spent money on, all those purchases, all those pleasures that seemed so important at the time, but compared to the glory of eternity, now look insignificant, look so temporary. We don't want to look back and think, if only I had got that, only I'd understood it, if only I'd invested more in eternity, if only I'd used my resources for what really counts. And I believe the question that leaves with us today is, where do we want to invest our resources that God has entrusted to us? Here or through eternity? It's called the treasure principle and it affects everything about our life and it certainly affects the way we view death. This is Randy Alcorn again. He who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is lost. He who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily towards his treasures. To him, death is gain. He who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reason to rejoice. Now in talking about investing in the kingdom, I don't mean to communicate that generosity doesn't cost us. It does. At various times, many of us here, including Debbie and myself, have felt the strains of financial squeeze. We've often gone without things that some of our contemporaries have been able to afford. But my encouragement to you is that the joy of investing in God's kingdom far outweighs the joy of material pleasures. Generous people know the experience of blessing which can be immediate, it is often abundant, and more importantly, it is eternal. Many of you are already committed to investing financially in all we do as a church. You're giving faithfully, both regularly and also to special offerings and maybe to building projects. Some of you are yet to commit to giving regularly, and I really would like to encourage you this evening to think about that, pray about that, and what the Lord might be asking you to give. Of course, your giving will enable the church to do what God has called us to do, and that is wonderful. But I want this for you. I want your life and your experience of eternity to be enriched. I often get asked by Christians who want to start giving, well, how much should I give? Can you give me some sort of guideline? And uh, I've read quite a number of books on generosity. Many authors point to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament principle of giving a tithe, that is giving 10% of the money that you have coming in. In the New Testament, we're no longer under law that that would be a rule, but we're now under grace. And we're encouraged to take that rule of a tenth and use it as a guideline, actually use it as a starting point. And many of us give quite a lot more than that. Now, if you've not really ever given in a significant way uh, before, a tenth is going to be, I beg your pardon, did I hear that right? That's like, that's a lot... Uh, of money or a lot of percentage but experience shows that as we live faithfully to the teaching of the scripture that God will enable the 90% that remains to stretch at least as far as 100% would have in your own strength you might want to test him 
in that and see if he's faithful to his word. If 10% seems like too big a step, then start somewhere. Start regularly giving through your bank, maybe 2%, maybe 5%. Work up to it over time as you mature in this gift of generosity. What if I'm in debt or under considerable financial pressure? Well, you need to seek the Lord and um, you know, ask him what he would have you do. Every situation is different, and I certainly don't want to say anything that would increase the sense of burden that you already have. But if it was me, I would choose a percentage and I would give it, and I would trust that the Lord would bless me for it. One main reason why people don't get their giving sorted out is actually not because they're resistant to God, but often simply because they don't get around to it. And so on alternate seats around the room, there are some forms and envelopes, and they're not there to pressurize you into doing anything at all. But they would enable you, if you want to increase the standing order you already have to the church or to start a new one, you could use that form. Because many of you today may want to make a change. And having a form like that helps you to do that without having to try to remember to go to the connect here and pick something up. So if you want to fill one in, you can do it actually before you leave. We've got some guarded boxes by the doors, but most of you, I imagine, will want to take it home. And I'd encourage you, think about it, pray about it. What would you write in it? What would the Lord have you give? If you prefer, as most of you probably do, you can do it online through your bank and the church's bank details are on the form, so take the form away and you'll be able to do that. And if you do it with your bank, it's quite helpful if you could just email the finance department, that's giving at trentvineyard.org, to let them know, uh, we can expect that amount per month coming in and they'll know when it comes through who it is. Details of other ways to give can be found on the website where you'll find a link to give via church suite, and again, you'll find our bank details. So I'd encourage you just to go home and think about, you know, what do I have coming in? What's my income? Work out a percentage and uh, do that this week, if possible. Take action on it before you've forgotten it and before indeed that form gets buried under a pile of papers and the rest of life takes over and before you know it, Christmas has come and gone. 